Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Today's episode is actually a recording of an event I did a few weeks ago for the organization Braver Angels. The mission of Braver Angels is to depolarize our politics by setting up dialogues between people who disagree on stuff. And in that spirit, they set up this conversation between myself and Rakim Brooks, who is the senior campaign strategist and systemic equality campaign manager for the ACLU. And this was moderated by my friend John Wood Jr., a great writer and national leader for Braver Angels. We talk about critical race theory, group psychology and tribalism, the role history should play in our current political discourse, and we feel lots of questions from the audience. There were some interesting disagreements between me and Rakim, and also many points of agreement, so I hope you all enjoy this. And without further ado, the Braver Angels event. Uh, on behalf of uh, Braver Angels, on behalf of our community, from our community to yours, uh, I'd like to welcome everybody in this room to another great episode of America's Public Forum. As you might have heard, I don't know the specific details. We'll figure this out later. But this is uh, um, just registration-wise, quite possibly the biggest America's Public Forum event we've done uh, in the year or so that this program has been around. And so just uh, ahead of time, thank you all for coming. Thank you all for registering. And thank you all for being interested not only in the work of Braver Angels, but in the deeper implications of the work of Braver Angels and our friends in this depolarization space on great issues of deep importance that matter deeply to American life. So it's been fun working with, uh, with a great team and it's been fun getting things uh, set up. So uh, without further ado, let me go ahead and just give everybody a quick tech talk and then I'll hand it over to my good friend, John Wood Jr. to uh, go ahead and start us off this evening. So, um, so, uh, so for all of those who have been to America's public forums in the past on Wednesday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern time, we are doing things the same as we usually do. For those who are joining us for the first time, welcome. Uh, and uh, we hope to see you at many more of these as well. So, uh, so just uh, three quick things for Tech Talk. First off, please keep yourself on mute uh, over the course of the event. Uh, that will uh, help us keep things going a little bit smoothly. We do want to hear your voices in this, but uh, we would like your voices to come in at the question and answer period. So uh, once we get to the question and answer period, you will be asked to unmute yourself if you have a question to, uh, to bring into the conversation. So second off, uh, let's talk a little bit about Q&A. So uh, we're going to have about 85, 90 minutes of uh, moderated conversation between John Wood Jr., Coleman Hughes, and Rakeem Brooks. At the end of that, we will go into about 20, 25, or 30 minutes of Q&A. We'll get in as many people as, as we can. Uh, during the Q&A period, please use the raise Zoom hands function to let us know you have a question. So if you know how to use the raise Zoom hands function, please go ahead and show us now by raising your Zoom hand. Excellent, excellent, excellent. I see lots and lots of Zoom hands. Cool. Good to know that you all have uh, learned something over the last year and a half of uh, pandemic Zoom calls. Good to know. All right. So uh, if, uh, if everybody can go ahead and uh, lower their Zoom hands and we will uh, get back to the tech talk. So. 
Third thing is, is uh, you will see uh, there are three individuals or four individuals in this, uh, this room who have either uh, whip or zem in front of their names. Uh, those are, uh, and if you all could please wave, those are Dennis Smith. Uh, Elizabeth Dahl, Sasha Rickard, and Luke Nathan Phillips, myself. Uh, we are the Braver Angels Zoom staff here tonight. Uh, we're going to be doing troubleshooting from behind the scenes and uh, just making sure that things work out as smoothly as possible. So if you have any questions at all about the logistics of the event, how to raise your Zoom hand, how to do any kind of uh, unmuting, or if uh, how you can get access to this event after it's done, uh, feel free to chat to any of us and we will happily help. Also, feel free to chat comments and questions, and especially questions you might want to ask during the Q&A to us over the course of the first part of the conversation. If you chat questions to us, uh, that will somewhat increase your chance of being called on uh, once we get to the actual Q&A period as well, too. So, um, so yeah, well, uh, with that, let's uh, just do a quick thing. So uh, America's Public Forum has been Braver Angels' premier events program to bridge the worlds of grassroots red-blue depolarization work with the world of thoughtful journalism and scholarship and activism, and to bring some of the most thoughtful and interesting and penetrating minds on the great issues of our age uh, in contact with and in communi uh, communication with the, uh, the great work in terms of bringing Americans together and uh, helping us to see the humanity in each other across our divides that Braver Angels and a lot of our fellow organizations have done. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun doing it. Uh, I look forward to many more, more events, but in the meantime, I'm quite looking forward to this particular event on this particular hot button issue that uh, I can think of no one better to lead a conversation on than my good friend, the Braver Angels National Ambassador, John Wood Jr. So uh, with that, John, let me hand it off to you as the MC of the evening. Uh, everybody looking forward to learning things with you tonight. Thank you very much, Luke. I appreciate that. And I appreciate all of you uh, for turning out for this conversation. I think it promises to be an occasion in which we can go a little bit deeper perhaps, uh, on a subject that is of intimate concern uh, to all of us. And uh, that is the question of race in America. That is the question of our racial relationships, the question of Black America, but the future of not just Black America, but all of American society, as it relates to our ability to navigate the tensions that present themselves to us in the context of our racial conversation. And um, it couldn't be uh, any more fraught <laughs> at the moment, although I don't want to overstate it because there's certainly amazing organizations and amazing individuals who are showing us ways to think more deeply about these issues and to act on our common ground, um, who are setting an example that may not always be widely covered or celebrated in national media, but that nevertheless are out there with stories uh, to be told. And I'm happy, very happy to be joined by, in my opinion, uh, two such individuals this evening, uh, who I fully anticipate will deepen our understanding from different, uh, perhaps, uh, intellectual starting points of the challenges that confront us uh, in the domains of race, race relations, uh, civil liberties, and related issues as well. And so, uh, with no further ado, I'd like to go ahead and introduce each of them briefly. We are joined today by uh, Rakeem Brooks. Uh, Rakeem Brooks is a public interest uh, appellate lawyer and across divisional campaign strategist with the American Civil Liberties Union. He is the senior strategist for the ACLU's Systemic Equality Campaign. Uh, Mr. Brooks, Rakeem, my good friend, it's great to have you here. Good to be here with everyone. Thanks for showing up. It's eight o'clock on the East Coast, so I don't know where everybody's calling in from, but I'm already tired. There you go. Well, we'll hope to reinvigorate you a little bit before it's time to uh, be off to bed. 
And uh, great to have you here once again. We are also joined um, by uh, Coleman Hughes, another friend of mine. And Coleman is a writer, featured in many prestigious publications, including as a columnist for Quillette Magazine. He's a former fellow at the Manhattan Institute, the host of the popular podcast Conversations with Coleman. Uh, he is also, I will have folks know, a jazz musician and a rap artist uh, whose uh, work can be found online. Uh, Coleman Cruz Hughes, good to have you with us, brother. I am. I'm very grateful to be here to talk with you and Rakim. Uh, not only is it 8 p.m. on the East Coast, it's also the hottest day of the year, and there is a very real chance, according to the text alert I got today, that New York has a blackout. So it, hopefully that doesn't happen. But yeah, right. Well, have them have them uh, wait until we're until uh, we're done with our with our program. Let's kick off the um, the conversation. First of all, before we jump right into the uh, right into the meat of it. I think I would be curious to have each of you begin just by telling us a little bit about yourselves vocationally and also how you enter into the subject of race and politics uh, in, in, in general. There's some sort of broad framings for your attitudes in relation to the broad social conversation that we're having about race uh, in America. Uh, Rakeem, would you introduce yourself for the benefit of our audience and give us some insight in terms of how you generally view these questions? Yeah, sure, I'm happy to. So good to, good to be with everyone, uh, Rakeem Brooks. I'm a senior campaign strategist with the ACLU, as John alluded to. I grew up in East Harlem in public housing, uh, largely with my grandmother, and um, attended public schools most of my life until college where I went to Brown. And um, then was a Rhodes Scholar for two years before coming back uh, to the United States and initially beginning to write uh, at an organization called Demos, a left-leaning think tank on questions of class and race and poverty, uh, mostly out of personal experiences, things that I had learned growing up. My grandmother made roughly $12,000 a year. And so I, so I saw firsthand the struggles that she experienced. Um, my mom was a working class single mother wasn't that my dad was in the picture, they just were separated. And so uh, these questions come to me somewhat biographically. They've been issues that I've always been interested in. Once I left Demos, I went to the Treasury Department and worked on community development issues for some time. Community development financial institutions, if folks are familiar with them, are institutions who have an affirmative obligation to lend in low to moderate income areas. So I learned a good deal there before going to Yale uh, for my JD and MBA. I've always sort of known I would end up back in this work. Uh, and it just so happened that this year, the ACLU established its systemic equality, which focuses explicitly on issues of race and class in America, and is really attempting to take a sledgehammer to uh, some of the things that we believe ail us as a society that prevent black communities uh, from succeeding at comparable rates to the rest of uh, America. And I'm excited to be doing the work. Um, it, it in many ways feels like a fulfillment of things I'm supposed to be doing. I've come full circle. And so that sort of contextualizes where I am. I can say some more, John, about, you know, some of my thoughts about race, but maybe I should let Coleman introduce himself and his approach, um, where, how he's come to these issues. By all means, Coleman, go ahead. Yeah. So I grew up in a, uh, mixed race, uh, mixed income town in New Jersey, a suburban, a very nice suburban town. And um, to be honest, didn't think about race very much growing up. You know, effortlessly had friends of many different races. 
and never really thought about race much except as maybe the punchline of innocent jokes and so forth. And, you know, I, I remember to give a sense of who I was as a kid on the issue of race. I remember one time some kids wanted to play a black versus white soccer game when I was like 10 years old or something. And it just struck me as instinctively wrong. I remember me and one other, one other girl, we like, we stopped it because I, you know, like a lot of people, like a lot of children, I always had the sense that the meaning of race is skin deep and and anyone who attributes more to it than that is making a, an error and an error that can have serious consequences. When I uh, graduated high school, I briefly went to Juilliard in the jazz program there, set on being a jazz musician before dropping out and going to Columbia and majoring in philosophy where I graduated about a year ago. And it was at Columbia where I was... Uh, although I was briefly exposed in high school to, to a very different approach to racial identity. One that, you know, goes by many names, woke, social justice, so forth, which, which really struck me as very different from the kind of colorblind anti-racism that I had grown up instinctively believing. And it was at that moment I became very interested in why when I had, you know, arrived in a place of such, such opportunity and privilege, it was precisely in such a location that the concerns about racism were, were the loudest I'd, I'd ever experienced. Um, and that's the context in, when I, in which I became curious about sort of what is the psychology of this? And um, so that's when I started you know, reading and writing voraciously about, about the topic. And that's sort of how I came to it. So uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there for now. And uh, we can, we can go on to some other questions. Okay. Outstanding. And um, we will shortly circle back directly to this, um, to this question of colorblindness versus color consciousness or racial consciousness, because I think that that's going to be at the heart of plenty of what we want to navigate through in this conversation. So we'll come to that uh, soon. Um, Very much related to that subject, I want to start us off by having a conversation about the conversation over race in America. And, um, you know, the the three of us, uh, Rakeem and Coleman, we had a, a short conversation in advance of this program. I guess it was a few weeks ago, and we we made mention of you know, the larger dialogue over race in America. And interestingly, and sort of amazingly, in retrospect, I don't recall the phrase critical race theory having come up in our dialogue once. And I I think that's just because we were talking about the issue at various points of depth. And, you know, we're used to catch-all phrases emerging in the political conversation. But this phrase uh, has become, has so quickly become the anchor for even what seems to be the mainstream conversation over race in America, that I do want to ask you each what significance it does or does not hold uh, to. Uh, I was briefly watching um, Glenn Lowry, who's well-known to the three of us, and will be well-known to many folks uh, watching this program, and a conversation with Mark Lamont Hill in which he uh, 
in which he opined that most people who use the phrase critical race theory are not actually talking about critical race theory in, in any formal way. It's more of an allusion to sort of a shift in mood, a shift in attitude, a zeitgeist which demands that we be very much conscious of race as it operates in our systems and structures and policies and as it has operated in history, an insistence on that racial sort of consciousness. I want to ask you each, starting with Keen, the idea of critical race theory, um, how relevant is it to the conversation we're having about race in America, really? Is that a clarifying concept or a confusing concept for us? And uh, what would you like to say about it? Well, I hope that it's a clarifying concept to some extent, though I agree with Mark Lamont Hill that in fact, it's managed to obscure more than it reveals, partially because it's gotten caught up as um, academic ideas sometimes do in a political maelstrom that served to serve to confuse. So uh, maybe we should start off with some ground rules about what critical race theory is sure. and then say how it's sort of been interpreted and read. And there are various forms of critical race theory. I was a black studies major at Brown, among other things. I studied political theory at Oxford. And so I have some familiarity with the different ways in which this could be used beyond going to law school. And I would say that fundamentally, critical race theory is after, is trying to confront the idea that the United States, the uh, project of democracy started as a colonial settler society, just to say we had to displace, murder and kill the indigenous people of the land, in order to start America. There is then a second question, what we often refer to as America's original sin, which is the importation of coerced black labor in order to help build the country. There are then several other instances, the um, colonization occupation of Mexico in order to extend our country. And that all of these pieces are crucial parts of our history. And the question is, what is the significance of those parts of our history? There are other terms that are used in critical race theory, so sort of the permanence of white supremacy. The idea there is, is it possible to extract oneself from your history? So if all of those things carry freightedness and weight, what does it then mean for our present? And there are those who believe that every subsequent, um, there are those who believe that every subsequent step in American history has been colored by those early experiences. So after the end of slavery or emancipation, you subsequently move on to the Jim Crow era, you then move on to eras of mass incarceration, which require various remedies in the society. We have two reconstructions, as people have articulated it, the first reconstruction being in the 1860s and the second reconstruction beginning in the 1950s and extending through the 1960s, and people like William Barber calling for a third reconstruction. So that's my understanding and how I would level set. Now, the problem seems to be that when these concepts are being taught, they cause severe emotional, in some people, cause some emotional harm, some instability in their conceptions of themselves and their conceptions of their country. Um, I would say to that, I was trying to give an analogous example to someone. Um, when I watched Eyes on the Prize when I was 11 years old, first learned about Emmett Till, it was similarly traumatic, but it was a factual part of our history that this young man was killed when he went to Mississippi and that it helped to ignite the civil rights movement. But if you can imagine as an 11 year old watching this in fifth grade for the very first time, it prompted in me all sorts of resentments towards my country. Uh, those things then had to be channeled as education should always channel emotion towards some sense of betterment and understanding about the world in which you live and towards proactive action. 
And I think if anything, that's where we should be in the conversation about critical race theory, which is asking ourselves, what does it mean to be informed about these concepts and then to act on them, to treat them as significant in relation to all the history that we've been teaching forever, and then um, to take pro, you know, proactive steps in that direction. Instead, what we've decided to do is really try to I don't know, bury our heads in the sand about those realities and that particular way of teaching history. Some might argue there's overemphasis. I haven't been in those classrooms. I, haven't, I don't have any children, so I haven't been in a classroom for quite a long time. So I can't tell you exactly how it's being taught or whether or not I agree with the amount of emphasis being given. But it, these are essential episodes in our history. And one, one of my friends quipped just uh, recently, you know, we decided that Juneteenth was a holiday but of course then have no ability to talk about it through the critical perspective that would be necessary to understand how it came to be a holiday and what its significance might have been to black communities, not just at the moment in which the slaves were notified in Texas that they were free, but the continuing history throughout the United States of continuing to celebrate that particular day as a day of emancipation alongside the 4th of July. What did that mean to black Americans? And I think critical race theory gives you some insight into that. Thank you, Lakeem. Um, so, Coleman, um, I invite you to comment on the function of critical race theory, at least as a conversation piece and sort of anchoring the national dialogue right now, getting back to this question of is this emphasis on critical race theory confusing more than it is clarifying, uh, but also feel free to comment uh, somewhat at least on your understanding and, and feeling about the substance of critical race theory, do you see it as meaningfully informing the national dialogue? And do you have an instinct as to whether that is constructive or, or destructive? Okay. So, you know, as a philosophy guy, I've read a lot of the original critical race theory writing by Kimberly Crenshaw and many others. And I always found it to be a, an intellectually interesting philosophy one among many. Uh, I thought it was wrong, but I also thought it was, you know, I think a lot of philosophies are, are, are wrong that are, you know, worth thinking about. I, and I, I definitely agree with many who have said that actually what critical race theory is in the original academic sense of the idea is not precisely what people are talking about when they attack or defend critical race theory, at least in the past few months in the national discourse. You know, I, I could I could go on for a long time about what how I would summarize it as a philosophy, but the shortest version I can give is well, I, it requires a little bit of an analogy. But l- let me just give this brief analogy for for what I understand the philosophy of critical race theory to be. When when you're a kid, you learn the concept of an accent of someone speaking with an accent, and often kids learn this by by implicitly feeling that there's a quote unquote normal way to talk and anyone who talks different is speaking with an accent, right? Whereas you don't speak with an accent. And at some point you grow up and you realize actually any way of speaking just is an accent. You have this sort of aha moment. And what critical race theory says is it's kind of this, this a similar kind of realization and except instead of being about accents, it's about the value structure of society itself. Like there is no such thing as a neutral view from nowhere, just like there's no such thing as speaking without an accent. And the, the value structure of American society itself is steeped in white supremacy and racism. And so all of the standards, whether they be laws, whether they be 
norms, um, you know, taking the SAT and the structure of, of standardized testing being one example, these things that may be facially neutral are in fact norms that cannot be separated from the history of white supremacy and the fact that this country is fundamentally tilted uh, in favor of one group and, and against another. That's, that's the basic insight of critical race theory, that neutrality, neutral value structures um, certainly aren't what exist in America and perhaps aren't even possible in principle. Now, I think that's, that's a very interesting claim philosophically. I don't think it's right, but that's really what I understood critical race theory to be as a, as a kind of philosophy nerd. What people are talking about when they talk about CRT today in the, in the national discourse is not that necessarily, but as you, they're talking about a general mood that has sort of existed since the 60s, if not earlier, about the narrative of what America is. You know, it's, uh, is America an inherently racist country that will never outgrow its racism? Do we need law, race-conscious laws and policies in order to rectify the effects of slavery and Jim Crow um, and a kind of muscular racial identity among black people? Or do we need, you know, a, a colorblind universalist approach to anti-racism, a, a class-based set of policies, and, and w- with an eye towards identifying as Americans before we do as, as, as members of, of a particular race. And I think critical race theory has become a, you know, I, I think, I think Christopher Rufo has had a large role in, in labeling that kind of mood, which has existed for, for many decades with, with this particular philosophy, which is related to that mood. Certainly they're, they're not unrelated at all. They're just not exactly the same thing. So that that's what I would say on that front. Indeed. And I think that that delivers us directly to this um, question, which I think is, is, is deeply baked within the sort of critical construct within which we are speaking. And that has come to sort of animate the larger discussion here. This question of, of whether it is vital or in fact, grossly damaging uh, for us to think uh, and operate uh, in direct recognition of racial con- uh, racial categories. Now, I'm going to summon a couple of quotes here to help help us give some context to to this. But I have a quote here uh, from Ibram X. Kendi in How to Be an Anti-Racist, where he says, quote, singular race makers push for the end of categorizing and identifying by race. But the unfortunate truth is that their well-meaning post-racial strategy makes no sense in our racist world. That's Ibram Kendi. Uh, and now, uh, from the other side of that spectrum, take some words from uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, who writes in, uh, um, and pardon me, uh, that quote from Ibram Kendi was from How to Be an Anti-Racist. This here is from Self-Portrait in Black and White from Thomas Chatterton Williams, where he writes, I will no longer enter into the all-American skin game that demands you select a box and define yourself by it. And he goes on to say that uh, whether we are referring to, quote, uh, vicious bigotry or well-meaning anti-racism, unquote, that the perpetuation of these racial categories um, is per- pernicious. And he further says, quote, I am not renouncing my blackness and going on about my day. I am rejecting le- the legitimacy of the entire racial construct 
in which blackness functions as one orienting pole. And again, that's Thomas Chatterton Williams' self-portrait in black and white. So we have a couple of poles here, maybe to some degree, Rakeem and Coleman, you guys uh, sort of represent them, although I wouldn't want to uh, just say that without, without any nuance here. I guess my question to start with is, do you two see, granted that there are these two poles where we could consider ourselves to be highly race conscious or absolutely sort of colorblind and disregarding racial categories, is there a balance to be sought between these two? Or do we really do need to strive towards an absolute realization of one of these attitudes or another? If there is a balance that needs to be struck here, what is the nature of this balance and why is it important um, to, to reach for it? And um, uh, this time I'll start back with uh, you, Coleman, and, and Rakeem can respond after you're done. Go ahead. Yeah, so I do think there is a balance to be struck or, or the way I would put it more precisely is that there are areas of life in which, to me, it seems appropriate to have a race consciousness, a benign kind of race consciousness. Am I going to go up to a Jewish person and say, you have to stop identifying as Jewish insofar as their Judaism means they have, they like, you know, Passover is meaningful to them. They like to think about the ancestral story. You know, the memory of the Holocaust means something to them. They celebrate Hanukkah and so forth. That seems to me a rather benign kind of group identity. Now, that kind of group identity, unfortunately, very quickly bleeds into, into areas where it, it, it becomes pernicious. It blinds you to, to facts about the world that are unwelcome to the group. So, you know, to, to, in, in the case of Judaism, obviously, to be a Jew that is, for instance, pro-Palestine can be a, a seriously deranging opinion to have insofar as, as that's a belief that may be punished within your in-group, regardless of whether it, it's rational or not. Just the fact that it could be punished can lead you to not be able to think straight about that issue. And with the case of race in America, you know, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, it seems there's an analogous thing to me, which is like, if your blackness consists in, uh, you know, the particular kind of music you like, the way you talk, the way you dress, what you're talking to me is, is what you're talking about to me is just belonging to a certain subculture. And, the, you know, the history of slavery is meaningful to you and you like to celebrate Juneteenth. These are all, you know, this seems like totally benign to me until the group identity influences truly the way that you think about, say, the issue of unarmed Americans getting shot by the police, right? It's like, is your, are you taking the default black opinion rather than reasoning through the, the issue from step one? Insofar as that's what your blackness consists of, then I think it becomes seriously toxic. But insofar as it's a kind of benign group identity, I think that is totally unavoidable and, and not to be discouraged even. Indeed. Uh, and so, Rakeem, um, same, same question to you. Is there a, are we to strive to embrace one end or the other of the poles between, let's say, strict race consciousness and strict colorblindness, or is there a balance to be struck in the middle? And if so, where would you put that and why would that be important? Yeah, it's a very complicated question to me. Um, I was trying to listen closely to what Coleman was saying um, about the idea of it being of any identity being benign, and I think 
even Thomas Chatterton Williams' description of it doesn't square with me in that I don't know that he would ever renounce being a man while recognizing that that has serious structural forces in his life about how he conducts himself. He would rather have to recognize within himself that as a man, I presume certain things about the world and exist in the world in certain ways and am received by the world in certain ways. I totally agree with Coleman's point of view that for me, identity should be emancipatory. So, the, I mean, the point I was making really is um, using identities as a bridge. Coleman's analysis to me is exactly right that it can be the opposite. There's for sure any set of identities. It doesn't just pertain to race, gender, class. Um, how we come into the world, we come in with blindnesses. And part of education, to back to our discussion about critical race theory, um, among other things that you learn in the world, I really appreciated General Milley's comments on the subject where he said, I read Marx. I mean, I've read conservative columnists like Coleman and Thomas Sowell my entire life because I'm interested in what people have to say. And I appreciate that Coleman reads critical race theory, though he doesn't agree with it because he thinks that mm, it's interesting and it informs my perspective and helps me to shape how I think about things. To me, identities uh, operate in much the same way. We're born with them. They're sometimes imposed by our communities. And part of human liberation is for sure to acknowledge them and make your way through them. To cast them off, it strikes me that Thomas Sheraton Williams and others are engaged in a different kind of project, which is to say that the identities are insignificant. And that doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem to actually square with reality. Something we, I don't know if we'll get to this, John, but I'll just bring it up now. And maybe it'll serve as a segue back to something we were going to discuss. But um, in preparing for this, I went back to an interview that I did with Michael Dawson, who is a University of Chicago professor who specializes in public opinion. And he was pointing out that the largest gulf in public opinion is between Black Americans, White Americans, controlling for all, you know, class, ethnicity, um, uh, gender, and so forth. And this is one of the quotes that he came, gave to me then, which was whether we're talking about what the role of government is, which you think of the United Nations, political leaders, Ronald Reagan, Jesse Jackson, Bill Clinton, President Obama, or how to respond to Hurricane Katrina, and whether it had anything to do with race. Across, across a wide variety of issues, we see differences between mainstream Black and white American opinion dwarfs anything in American public opinion, period. Democrat versus Republican, men versus women, conservative versus liberal. The white-black divide is the biggest, one of the biggest in the world, and certainly the largest gap in the United States. Take, for example, the Hurricane Katrina point. 38% of white Americans thought Hurricane Katrina had some relationship to race. 90% of black Americans thought that it was about race. To Coleman's point, to the extent identity is obscuring anything on either side, that is to say that enough white Americans are aren't acknowledging that it had something to do with race or enough black Americans aren't acknowledging the other factors beyond race, one would have to understand their identity as black or as a man or as a woman or as any particular category in order to then be able to confront how group identities might be constricting their ability to understand something, or, and this Coleman didn't say, and I'm curious if you would agree with it, or actually may enhance one's ability to see something that other groups are unable to see. That is to say that there can be, out of a certain kind of camaraderie and group consciousness, an elevated sense of what something, uh, of an experience, that in isolation you couldn't have. So for example, when we're discussing issues of police brutality, it may very well be the case, or maybe that's not the best example. Let's take a different one. Issues of uh, infant mortality. It may very well be the case that Black women in isolation might understand themselves individually to be having a problem within their lives and in the, in the uh, healthcare system when they lose a child, they miscarry disproportionately. 
But by being in community with other Black women and then understanding actually there's something going on, many of us are experiencing this, they develop elevated consciousness, that is through a recognition of their identity in place. And so I think the kind of rhetorical back of the hand to identity ignores the actual structural forces that identity create in our world and the extent to which our um, ability to see the truth, it becomes refracted through identity, both for good and for ill. Okay, pardon me. We're uh, working back and forth with the mute function here as we seek to minimize musical interludes uh, <laughs> in the course of this this conversation. Um, Coleman, I, I, I would uh, be interested in, in hearing uh, your response to Rakeem's point about there potentially being a positive cognitive function that is served by our positive say social epistemological function served by 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 being a part of a, a group identity and having that reveal things in experience that may actually be hidden if one is sort of neutral or perhaps merely has kind of a benign relationship, an aesthetic relationship to ethnic identity. Do you see that as being a part of the picture potentially, that there's some positive social awareness to be gleaned through uh, having such an identity? In principle, it's possible. In practice, I think it happens far, far less often than groups getting together and on, on, in every possible way, in every possible tribe, exaggerating the grievances against them and minimizing right, harm that they cause. Right? This, is, this is true of really, literally any tribe in human history, the tendency when one gets together in a tribe is, is to get together and say, the other tribes suck and we're perfect. There's a center of gravity flowing towards that opinion that is so strong in our species that it, it just tends toward unreason on every side of an issue. Again, there are, I would acknowledge in principle it's possible and certainly has happened for people to get together in a group and realize, holy shit, the thing that's, that happened to you also happened to me. This is actually a problem that has to be solved at the level of groups. And I think that kind of consciousness raising played a big role in, you know, the, the lead up to the civil rights movement. You go back and, and look at what A. Philip Randolph had to argue in the 1940s. A lot of what he had to do was actually get black people to realize that A, uh, there's something worth fighting for here to not just be jaded and resigned to to their lot and to say, we, we can succeed. Um, we don't have to live with this injustice and it's happening to all of us and to consciousness raise in, in that way. A lot of it, he had to do a level of persuading that wouldn't have been necessary nowadays and that we take for granted because of the, the moral ground that was gained by the civil rights movement. Um, so I, I, I don't, I, t- I totally agree in principle that kind of consciousness raising is possible and happens. I just see much more often on almost any issue of significance you could name, people by race and by party getting together and saying, we're not to blame at all and the other side is entirely to blame and screw whatever the facts on the ground are. So, so that, that, that's what I would say. Rakeem, my, my guess is that uh, you likely have some sentiments and 
response to that analysis. But if so, uh, I wonder if you might not leverage them in addressing my next uh, point here or my next uh, question for you both. Uh, so what I'd like to do is ground this dynamic of the conversation uh, in some actual uh, issues. And so I think that, and you know, three of us all have a uh, concern and relationship to issues of civil liberties and so forth. And obviously, Kane, this is directly your your field. Nevertheless, uh, when we think about issues such as voting rights, for instance, I think that there is a way of looking at the debate over ballot access in America that, on the one hand, could evaluate, let's say, voter laws in Georgia. And say, okay, well, you know, they are uh, advocating for policies in the Republican-controlled state legislature that may be uh, limiting uh, early voting, or may pre- prevent uh, people from being able to distribute water in line, or reducing voting availability on Sunday, uh, and that uh, these are misguided policies, maybe motivated by political ire but something that we should look at uh, in its own context. Or we could evaluate those policies and say that there's a direct connection between uh, Georgia's uh, political reforms here, uh, a history of anti-Black discrimination in the South, the repealing of or the nullifying of, of, I think it was Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, the preclearance requirement that called upon Southern states uh, to achieve uh, federal clearance for uh, proposed um, voting reforms. We could situate it in that historic narrative. And some folks would say that that distorts our ability to see the issue clearly. Others would say that we precisely need that narrative uh, and racial context in order to see the issue clearly. And I think you could say the same thing about law enforcement, our relations between the Black community and, and law enforcement. One could say that Incarceration, mass incarceration, the phenomenon of mass incarceration is a function of criminal justice laws that are flawed, not well thought through, uh, but that could be st- understood as merely being reflections of bad policy or, and bad incentives. Or uh, we could tie we could tie mass incarceration, we could tie the deaths of unarmed black men at the hands of police officers in 2020 to a longer racially uh, charged history uh, of brutality from law enforcement towards African-Americans and episodes of our country's history uh, going all the way back to slavery where incarcerated labor um, was 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 perhaps the goal in the law enforcement uh, practices of various parts of the country. And so the, the question is whether... I invite you two to comment on either or both of these issues specifically, or if there's another example in the domain of policy that you might want to refer to, uh, that's fine too. But can, can either of you speak to particular issues and show how color consciousness or color blindness either distorts or clarifies our ability to grasp the issue in clear-headed empirical terms? And so, Rakeem, I'll go to you first on this, and then we'll circle back to Colvin. These are both good examples that I wanted to use, actually. You know, in the law, there's a notion of disparate impact, and the basic idea being that a policy can disproportionately affect one group or another, usually a recognized group under federal law, and therefore it would be impermissible, regardless of the intentions of 
the um, policymaker. And so take voting rights and um, criminal justice in particular. And I wanted to give these two examples. Um, after the 2020 elections where we had record turnout, including among black communities, um, pardon me for the uh, sounds in the background. Um, we had record turnout among black communities, states throughout the South, um, throughout the country, but largely concentrated in the South, Republican-led states began to enact um, various voter measures. Let's not call them, let's not characterize them in any particular way, which on the whole were thought to disadvantage the participation of black people perhaps by virtue of their class, which is to say, here's an example. We could, we made Juneteenth a national holiday. We could make election day a national holiday. Why would that disproportionately benefit black Americans? Um, because black Americans are disproportionately in working professions that wouldn't give them the same levels of flexibility on that day. Right? So you can have a various, le various levels of construction of a, a voting system that either empowers black people to vote or let's say a group of people so congregated or disempowers them. Now, we um, similarly, in the context of criminal justice, let's say that you are living in a black community that um, is plagued by gun violence and the police say, well, we know how to stop the gun violence. We're going to stop each and every one of you, a black men between a certain age, as a way of preventing the gun violence. And almost certainly that will prevent the gun violence, because if, in fact, 99 or 100 percent of the guns are located in that population and you're able to stop everyone, then you will end the gun violence. But you then get a response from the community which says, well, actually because the police, meaning uh, rightfully so, would be afraid of interacting with anyone who might have a weapon, they treat all of us extraordinarily badly in an attempt to deal with what is a very real problem. And so might we suggest something else? The reason I'm drawing out these two contrasts is because this sort of gets to my point about the Michael Dawson piece. Even if the policy is neutral, it seems as though the people who are instituting the policy are not responsive to the people who complain about the policy and say that it will disproportionately impact them. And the question is why? And that is when human beings begin to refer to history and other sets of assumptions about why it is they're engaging in this particular way. Now, take the case in North Carolina, you, you all may not remember it exactly, but Cooper v. Harris, where the Republicans essentially drew lines so that they were including more black people in a the district, they're packing black people into a district. And of course, the response from the Republicans was, we don't care who they are. We just know that they're Democrats. <laughs> and because they're Democrats, we're trying to pack them. It has nothing to do with race. But in the context of having the discussion, they had to say, how do we know these people are Democrats? Well, there's a large Black population here. Let's move them into the district. This gets back to the point about racial recognition is happening all the time for ill or for benefit. And the extent to which the groups of people who have been racialized are then allowed to have to participate meaningfully in the process to redress and perhaps remake the policy strikes me as something of significance. And so this isn't so much of an answer to your question, John, as a framing device for thinking about this, which is if in fact a disproportionately impacted group lacks the political power to reverse the decision that disproportionately impacts them in a given area, then how are we to how are we to analyze it? Are we to say it's merely race neutral when in fact was a bunch of black people against seemingly a bunch of white people in many of these states? Or are we to say, even if it were race neutral, it has this disparate impact? Or do we layer on an analysis about history? And my point is people are always going to lay on an analysis about history and it is a relevant factor. 
That's just who we are as human beings. We don't come into this world without histories to which we are unattached. I tend to share much of Coleman's, I think, personal sentiment where I'm often trying to cast off labels about what people think I should and shouldn't be doing in the world. But my political analysis doesn't reside there. My political analysis resides in the fact that people are trying to label me and are trying to make assumptions about who I am and what I will do and shape policies based on who I am and what they think I will do. So I hope that's helpful. I got interrupted a few times um, in, tr in trying to formulate that. Um, if anything was unclear, I'm happy to restate it. No, not a problem at all. And uh, Coleman, and let's make sure that Coleman is uh, unmuted or is able to unmute. Um, Coleman, I, I think that you have sort of a choice of frames here. I, I set up this tension in one way. It's something of a binary, you know, taking a given issue and saying, okay, we can look at it through this lens or, or the other lens. Uh, Rakeem seems to be saying that there's a certain inevitability to having to view these issues through through a historical and a, perhaps a color-conscious lens if we're serious about it. So respond how you would like to to the core choices here before. So uh, again, this is an area where I agree in principle. History can be very relevant to an injustice going on today. So with, with voter suppression... Let me say this. It matters how tightly the current circumstance actually resembles the specific historical injustice in question. So with voter suppression, you have much more similarity than you do with some of the claims people make about the police in, in, in my estimation. So if you're going to say, you know, if you're going to make an argument, you know, write an article saying, look at the voter suppression that's happening in Georgia okay, it's not exactly what happened in Jim Crow, but look at these similarities. There's a kind of through line even that that's worth thinking about. And that explains what part of what angers people so much about it, in addition to the mere fact that you're making it a bit harder to get to the polls. It's like, it has this historical resonance and it's not too dissimilar. It's, it's a, just a, you know, a softer form of what people did in the past, something that we all recognize as a stain on the country's history. Okay. That's a specific example where the argument from history contributes something meaningful and important. I see a lot of examples where, where it doesn't. You know, so for instance, uh, one thing people will often point out is that the police in America started as slave patrols. And that's supposed to be relevant to the problems that we face with policing today. That's a situation where I think, are you kidding me? Really? Are we going to, A, are, are we going to impugn an institution for being old enough to have, have started in an era where uh, almost anything was messed up? You know, someone like Candace Owens, for instance, will make the point about Planned Parenthood that one of its founders w was a bit too eugenicist for comfort and will use that to score points against Planned Parenthood. And I think the same thing. What a cheap argument. What, what an act, actually an argument that doesn't acknowledge how any institution changes significantly over time, right? And I feel the same thing with, uh, with the police, for instance. If you're going to look at a specific example where a cop fired on an unarmed American, for, for instance, and say, well, to understand this moment, we really have to go all the way back to slave patrols. There's a meaningful similarity here. Or, or lynching, for instance. I think that's a case where the reflex to go to history seriously blinds you to how different the present is and, and how, uh, how the challenges we face 
are often truly new, right? Like every generation sometimes just faces straight up new challenges about which history does not necessarily give you a clear guide. So the short, the long and short of it is you have to take it on a case by case basis, right? And if, if in one case history is important, it doesn't imply that, you know, the, the reflex to talk about history is always useful and, and in not some cases harmful. Rakeem, uh, I would like you to uh, respond to that. Is it the case that arguing from history and having a historical uh, and a cultural consciousness through which we evaluate issues of policy is perhaps situationally beneficial, but not necessarily universally so or so in principle? Or would you push back on that? And I see Rakeem's mute. Okay, there we go. Oh, I gave him the power to unmute myself. I didn't <laughs> you've, you've taken your power back, brother. Um, Go for it. Thanks, Lou. Uh, it's, um, I think, now so sort of sound like Coleman, I think in principle I agree, of course, that seems right to me, that, that you can't use history as a kind of blunt instrument because something existed in one way. You just sort of, let's put it this way, you don't use history to sort of flatten the present into something that you can understand. I think that's right. The example of the police officers starting as slave patrols struck me as uh, the kind of thing that someone references to tell a longer story, not just to tell that story. And I think one of the things that I'm, I'm sort of hearing in Coleman, and I'm curious if he thinks this is accurately reflected, is there can be, again, instances in which race and racial analysis, sociological analysis is just used as a blunt instrument and people are using it to justify ends that they want to affirm within themselves. And I, maybe it's my own predilection, I try to ignore those things as far as the sophistication of whether or not something can or can't be used. The people who I've read who try to start by saying that these began as slave patrols, then try to trace a history that actually is not that long as you might imagine, right? My grandmother was born in 1933. Her grandmother, if I got this right, I'm pretty sure her grandmother was born a slave. She actually, therefore, has enough historical knowledge between the two links to link a very, very long history and categorize how things might have been over time and how they changed. So I think I'm a little uh, I'm pushing back on Coleman to some extent, because, yeah, if someone just says there were slave patrols, so you can understand exactly what the LAPD is doing today, (laughs) I would say, like. You know, they certainly have different weapons. They have different patrol patterns. They have different instincts about the threat that black people pose. They have different, frankly, measures to enforce violence against black people than they did. I mean, and vice versa. So those things would be complicated. But if someone started me there and says, look, I'm trying to help you understand why we think of the police as a racist institution. And I want you to understand that the particular formation that we created police departments out of started this way. As I move you forward, I want you to understand that the people who began to occupy police departments were often ethnic in the Northeast, at least something I'm more familiar with, were often ethnic immigrants whose first words and ways of becoming American were learning to say nigger and differentiate themselves from black populations. And that those people then begin to imbibe the exact same racist bile that existed before they ended up here. And then it carries on in certain ways. They tell a very, very long story. Now, at various points, Coleman may say, like, that's BS, that's BS, that's BS, right? Like the various linkages that someone is trying to draw. But it doesn't strike me that historical analysis of that kind, of the kind that I'm describing, which is trying to be delicate, attentive to various changes over time, is somehow irrelevant to public policy discussions. In fact, it seems 
quite relevant to me. Now, what we then do with it, I, I agree with Coleman entirely that you have to be sophisticated and nimble in your analysis. Things are not the same, right? It is uncomfortable to me when we just sort of take the phrase Jim Crow and uh, you know, are, um, drag it into any particular context without understanding the historical nuances that it allowed Jim Crow to exist. But I understand what people, again, this is the best among the analysts, not the worst among them, are doing when they say, but I need you to use this system so that you can begin to understand the ways in which it controlled black movement. So that then you can start to look at this other system and ask yourself, is it doing something similar? And you might say it is doing something similar, but not exactly the same, so forth and so on. It strikes me that all knowledge that works, works that way, scientific knowledge works that way. And we have to make corrections over time and say something you're relying on in the past no longer applies in the present because we have new information. Uh, but I would, I tend to be someone who thinks history matters quite a lot, particularly the history that where there are people with lived experiences still binding us to the past. Brilliant is a website and app that teaches you how to think and solve problems with fun, interactive lessons in STEM. With Brilliant's hands-on approach, you'll learn by doing instead of listening to lectures. It's a better and more fun way to learn. All of Brilliant's courses have storytelling, code writing, interactive challenges, and problems to solve. Brilliant offers many well-curated sequences of problems that help you master all sorts of technical subjects. So if you're into physics, you can try out their course on classical mechanics or gravitational physics. If you're into computers and coding, you can check out their courses on CompSci fundamentals or programming with Python. Brilliant has a vast array of courses that can help you achieve your goals in STEM. To check out the many courses available and find the one that's right for you, you can go to brilliant.org CWC and sign up for free. The first 200 people that go to this link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Once again, that's brilliant.org slash CWC. I have a query that I want to launch pivoting from this point, but I'm also um, fascinated to sort of observe each of your analytical streams seeming to converge a little bit. So before I go on to the next topic, Coleman, is there anything that you would like to say in response to Rakeem's nuancing of the function of historical and cultural reference in analysis? Has he put forward a, a sound um, analytical approach to utilizing these historical references, or is it, is it still a problematic instinct uh, in your view to tend to do so, at least in certain cases? Yeah, so, so I'm going to say the same thing. I, I don't disagree with anything you said in, in principle, I seem, seems to be a theme of, of the conversation. It's really, if we do have an agreement, it's, it's, it's definitely over the extent to which the, the problematic kind of historical linkage or, or historical thinking is actually occurring. I mean, I'll, I'll give one example of of why I think it's more prominent or more pervasive than um, you, you might, you might think, you know, the 1619 project to, to me is an example where an actually truly kind of cheap version of the historical argument was elevated to Pulitzer prize pump it through the school systems level, a level of prestige. And it's not to say everyone who wrote in that 
pro- or, or really anyone who wrote in that project was a hack. I mean, these are serious people that when they write at length have serious things to say, you know, someone like Matthew Desmond, serious sociologist who, who I would, I would not, it w- would be unfair to characterize him by what I'm, you know, the one example I'm about to give of his writing. But, you know, one of his essays for the 69 project, he talks about how Excel spreadsheets are part of the legacy of slavery because people accounted for the profits and losses of the plantations using a similar structure of like cells. And like, so like I read something like this and I'm like, come on, like that's laughable. And it's fine for people have all kinds of laughable opinions in the world. There's of people have laugh, many laughable opinions with the opposite political valence. They just don't really get Pulitzer prizes. So this turn I've seen really just, you know, in the past five years or so towards a kind of lack of skepticism of these historical arguments, especially in elite media, is kind of what motivates my opinion on this. Indeed. Last pass on this question, Rakeem, because I I saw you smiling a little bit at the the spreadsheet uh, example, but do you ever detect a little bit of um, excess, perhaps, in this mode of analysis and some of our elite publications or whatnot. And is there anything that you want to say to, to Coleman's uh, summary uh, analysis of his feelings here? Yeah, that I think he's mostly got it right. And I understand the concern more clearly, which is, and, and Coleman, you know, not, not if this is correct to some extent, but it, there's a kind of race, it sounds like your view is like there's a kind of race machine, race hysteria, right? That populates a kind of public education. And it could be more sophisticated. It could be more thoughtful, but it's not. <laughs> what we've got people listening to, thinking about with regard to race, is just sort of crazy. And it, it ends up being, even if there was a more sophisticated version, I thought Coleman did a fabulous job laying out what critical race theory talks about. Once we get it down to the classroom, we've worked it through the major periodicals of the country, you know, gone through different circles and meeting groups and whatnot, suddenly, and knitting, knitting sessions, suddenly we get this version of it that's just like, if that's what people believe, we're in serious trouble. Like they've lost everything that might have been ascribed to the, to the larger project. If that's the analysis that we're working with, I, I can see great merit in that, that complicated things when, you know, the game of telephone ultimately leaves us in somewhere that is miraculously disorienting you know, factually incorrect, et cetera. And I think I would be more interested in trying to figure out why that's the case. Um, and I think we might have different instincts about that. I tend to, I was having a discussion, uh, one of John, John put together another discussion at Coleman that you weren't a part of, where one of the um, participants was talking about wokeness. And I was like, you know, it's so funny to me because when I think about wokeness in a black context, remembering again that 90% of, at least in some circumstances, black people think different things than white people when they're polled in large numbers. When I think about wokeness, it never seems to mean what my white colleagues mean about wokeness, whether or not it be liberal white colleagues or like conservative white colleagues. And the like where the ire is cast is often at the white woke person when I was like, I thought we created the term as a way of talking about self-education and knowledge and being able to understand the society in which you live and beginning to educate yourself about that. Again, a bridge towards something, not a way of 
closing down, or I like the, the sort of term muscular raciality, but kind of not to turn it inward and say, actually, this is a reason for us to never talk about things or to be critical of ourselves or other people. That phenomenon that exists in the society, that kind of you know, race machine, race madness, race hysteria, is endemic to America. <laughs> and that's why I'm always confused when people say we should stop talking about race. And I think, well, yeah, we could stop talking about race. And you would think that might stop the hysteria. But actually, if the source of the hysteria is about more than race, it's about power, it's about relationships between individuals, then something else will come up. And it will be based on race in one way or another, but we would be talking about different things. So I don't know if that's wholly responsive, um, I th but I get what, what agitates Coleman, what perhaps <laughs> forces him to write so much that there's just all sorts of things that are set out there that don't really make all that much sense. But I think that about so many different topics that don't have anything to do with race. I'll give one last anecdote. I remember I was writing when I first started, like Coleman, um, I was uh, writing at a think tank. And I had actually learned a good bit about poverty. And one of my supervisors there said to me, watch how the news media will totally distort how to talk about poverty. I mean, I had like done the research, really read about it. And I can remember distinctly, they wrote a two-piece article. The first article was the day before the poverty statistics were supposed to come out and the next day with poverty statistics. So, because they, they released them every September or so, if I can remember correctly. And I remember them releasing the first piece saying something like poverty would go down. I don't remember the exact context. And me saying that is impossible. It is impossible for all of these reasons. Like if you just look at the sociological data, it, there is no way that can be true. Before you even get to the supplemental poverty measure, the national poverty rate will not go down tomorrow. And I wrote a piece to that extent saying like, who are these people that you allow to publish on the front page of your thoughts? And then the next day it came out and the poverty rate had gone up because, of course, it was, there was no way for that to happen. But to me, the questions about true knowledge being refracted through our media system and thereby distributed to people in ways that are false, misleading, incomplete, is a wholly different problem than the race enterprise alone. It's happening at every level of knowledge. Mm, indeed. Okay. Well, I think that that may, uh, in a couple of ways, link into the next and perhaps final piece that I want to put on the table uh, here, because I think we might actually pivot to questions a little bit early because there are, frankly, so many coming in. I feel the audience uh, energy in the Zoom, so I'm going to want to turn over the show to the questioners uh, in just a little bit here. But it, it occurs to me, it seems to me, and you know, perhaps one or both of you will, will disagree with me here, but... It seems to me like we are in a moment in, in American society wherein folks and you know on a range of issues, but certainly on issues related to, to race and, and identity, are either trying to argue each other or protest each other into silence. And so there's a way in which I think some polemical approaches to advocating for, for colorblindness, you might say tend to sort of delegitimize people as soon as they seek to make an identity sort of oriented point. And there's certainly, I think, a conspicuous way in which protests, what people call cancel culture and so forth, but the, the, the zeal with which we will sort of demand sometimes, whether it's Twitter mobs or, you know, uh, revolutions and editorial boards, potentially, or what have you, the zeal with which we demand that people sort of absent themselves from a certain 
platform or communication space, even before they've had an opportunity to contextualize or clarify their comments, simply because it falls outside of an overturned window, presupposes this idea that we can, in one way or the other, force people out of their natural sorts of starting points uh, for relating to issues related to race. But the truth is, is that I think you have people with different cultural uh, and, and psychological experiences. You have some people who start from a vantage point where their identity is, is very significant to them and helps shape how they see the world. And then you've got folks who, I mean, I think we all have identity, but for whom there may not be quite as conspicuous a rootedness in a particular ethnic or subcultural identity who have something that approximates more of a traditional kind of liberal way of looking at things. My question for you guys is on the sort of pragmatic approach to communicating across these divides so as to move society forward. Because I imagine that while it's worth defending one approach or the other, we're in a moment now where it seems as if PTAs uh, all the way up to governing bodies potentially, and certainly the cultures within major American corporations and institutions, have difficulty functioning because we are so quick to delegitimize one another's starting points that we fail to do what I think you two have done masterfully here this evening, which is to sort of acknowledge the validity of where each each the other is starting and to sort of reason towards a place of understanding where we align on the level of principles, even if the specifics of our kind of analysis on things may, may vary. Do you guys have advice for us, uh, braver angels in this audience and for all who are watching, in terms of how we can most constructively sort of communicate across this, to put it simply, philosophical divide. Is it the case that if we do not neatly converge in the middle of these two poles, we cannot make progress at all? Or, or is it possible for us to learn from one another, even if some folks are seeing things through more individualistically centered frame and other folks are seeing things through a more sort of group identity oriented frame? And I know that that's saying a lot, uh, but I feel utterly confident in tossing that ball to Coleman. Coleman, uh, what would you say to that? Yeah, I guess. Um, so this is a, the answer to this question has a lot to do with temperament and personality. I, I think some people are naturally better sort of listeners and conversationalists than others. Uh, everyone has to start wherever they are. But wherever you're starting, it's it's pretty much never a bad idea to push yourself more in the direction of really listening to whoever you're talking to. And at the beginning of a conversation, let go of the desire or expectation to win it, which is very difficult to do. What I struggle with, again, some people are just naturally much better at this and, and some people are naturally terrible at this. And you should be really honest with yourself about where you are. But, you know, good conversations happen when, when you go into it really seriously comfortable with the idea that you might lose an argument and that's okay. It's like, you're not stupid if you lose an argument. Uh, it's not about winning. And if you, if you go into it with that attitude, then you can actually hear what another person is saying and search your mind for what your honest response is and and see what it is. And th those conver conversation between two people that are working on that skill almost never goes poorly. 
Um, so I would say spend less time being mad at others for not talking the right way or listening enough and seriously worry about whether you are listening enough and actually, you know, are, are you rehashing a debate you heard on a podcast or on cable news or are you actually in the room with the person you're talking to? Right. And if you're not in that second situation, try hard to get in into it. Indeed. And well said. Rakeem, same question for you. Yeah, I totally agree with Coleman and maybe would just add two addendums or refining points is um, I've, uh, I try to be a student of organizational behavior. It's just something that interests me. And over and over again, one of the qualities and the best leaders um, is that they ask more questions and speak less frequently among groups. And so one actual practical tool is in the midst of a complicated and fraught debate, you might just stop yourself and ask questions. To Coleman's point, the only way to really do that is to acknowledge that not to speak as much or more will not result in your losing the debate, but rather perhaps clarifying and understanding certain pieces. The second piece I guess I'd offer is a kind of humility where I think most human beings on some subject have something of value to offer, right? I know that's a very generic statement, right? It's like it will rain somewhere today, right? Okay, <laughs> not very helpful. But the point really is that I engage with people thinking that they have something of value to teach me, even if it is a, to Coleman's kind of point, right, that a misperception is widely held. That's useful for me to know because it, again, structures our social reality and things that I care about. The last piece I'd offer, which is in the spirit of this conversation, is being willing to entertain ideas that are not ones that you hold for whatever reason. Um, again, I thought General Milley's uh, comment was extraordinary to say I've, you know, I've read communist tracks and I've read Mao. I don't know if he said he'd read Mein Kampf, but I try to read everything, um, recognizing that some books you're going to pick up and you're not reading them because what's in the book is accurate. You're reading it because it somehow became a phenomenon and um, shaped, again, how people perceive the world. But I'm also engaged in conversation to learn and to grow and to have myself challenged and change. Uh, I think based on what I've heard from Coleman, I share the kind of what we used to call an enlightenment instinct towards um, rationality and growth. That matters still to me. I think it should matter to all of us. And the only way to achieve that is actually, is again, I'm sort of citing Coleman, is not to sort of fall into a kind of groupthink and only surround yourself with people who share your ideas, but to be in genuine conversation with folks who hold different, different opinions. Um, sometimes that's easier when it's a topic with which you are less familiar, a topic with which you have not developed hard um, and sort of deeply held views, uh, but is adjacent to something that you care a lot about. I'm sure Coleman could school me all day and night about jazz, and I would learn quite a lot, right? Um, and then we start to talk about race, Stanley Crouch, and other people who start to bridge that divide for us in topics in which we are mutually interested. That, to me, is one of the, again, a sort of helpful tool to engage in conversation. Sometimes you got to move away from the eye of the fire and just say, actually, this other thing is kind of adjacent to it and kind of interesting. Let's, let's chat about that for a little while. Let me get again into the difficult moments, ask questions. Well, I look forward to having you both back for an event on jazz sometime in the uh, sometime in the future here. So, ladies and gentlemen, Rakeem Brooks and Coleman Hughes, let's go ahead and give a round of applause slash jazz hands, if you will, 
um, for our incredible speakers and thinkers here today. Uh, I, I really do appreciate it and love the opposing sentiments here. I think that we are all very much aligned on those values uh, and principles. And so, but now let's go ahead and turn it over uh, to you folks, because I get the sense that there are questions bubbling up. And as a matter of fact, I can see the hands already. Um, so before we start taking the questions, we have about, you know, I think a little less than oh, about 25 I'm sorry, closer to 35 minutes or so. So we can get a good chunk of time. In, but I'm going to insist that people do their utmost to be concise and ask a question. You know, lengthy opening monologues uh, followed by uh, uh, an excuse for a question mark at the end will very likely be cut off in midstream. I'm sorry, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but we just have to do the best we can to get everybody in the conversation because I think there's a lot that seeks to be asked here. And for our speakers, uh, Coleman, Rakeem, uh, obviously you guys can range out in response to the questions, but I'd ask you guys to be mindful of time as you do so. So let us begin uh, with uh, Rita Chisholm. Hello, Rita. Go ahead and ask your question. Thank you. Sorry about that. I'm just going to read what I wrote down. Uh, can we acknowledge that part of this struggle is that there are people of great education and intelligence who are driving... And I hate to use the word narrative because I don't like that word really when it's used in the negative context, but a narrative that the majority of those that they have inflamed do not really understand what they are being, the fullness of what they're being led to believe. And how much does psychology work into leading people to uh, believe certain theories and things? Thank you. Um, Rakeem or Coleman, um, uh, either of you can, can, can respond to that. Maybe the right answer to it is, you know, the kind of almost now quaint idea that you're responsible for your words, that we expect leaders to be responsible for their words. And we don't um, necessarily have a, a well-refined practice of, actually, here's a great idea. There's a book called Skin in the Game. I forget, I forget, it's Nassim, uh, I can't remember Nassim's last name. Um, Taleb. Taleb, right? Yeah. Yeah. Taleb, yeah. So he has this idea about skin in the game. And his basic proposition is much what you're saying, Rita, which is we allow people to say and do all sorts of things, and we don't force them to bear any of the consequences for it. And so all of the negative externalities end up in the world. And so he goes back to Hammurabi's code, and he says, you know, if a builder built a home and the home collapsed, they put the builder to death. That's a like tight link between your actions and the repercussions in society and what happened. And he talks about how we have all of these folks who, for example, supported the Iraq war, who went in one administration, said that we absolutely had to go in there because there were weapons of mass destruction. There was no effective feedback loop. And so they came back in a subsequent administration, though they had been entirely wrong about the presuppositions for the war that they presented to the American public. I, I don't have a direct answer for you other than to say, I think that's a great book that analyzes the problem and tries to draw out how is it that we can create tighter links between people. He uses the analogy of saying, don't tell, uh, when you ask your broker for advice about the stock market, don't tell me which, what to do, tell me what's in your portfolio, right? It's a tighter link to make sure that if a person is responsible and has to bear some of the blame for what they do, they are more likely to give better advice, to be more considered, about how the advice will land, so forth and so on. And I think that's the best we can do in society. And I agree with you entirely that we uh, don't do it well at all. We, especially when it comes to uh, Coleman, this is um, basically you know, Thomas Sowell's ideas about intellectuals in society, that people just get to broadcast these things and all of a sudden they have horrible impacts in the world 
And suddenly, like, they're just off to writing their next column, which is why I'm not a columnist. No, no, <laughs> no shade, Coleman. <laughs> <I'm> just saying. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, great. And uh, for time's sake, uh, we're going to move on to the next uh, question. Rita, thank you very much. I do appreciate that. Um, let's go now to uh, Jessica Roberts. Uh, and Jessica, if you can keep your, uh, keep your question tight, uh, we'll get you tight answer. So go ahead and uh, unmute. Uh, so I really have a two-part question, so I hope it's clear. I was watching an interview from Jane Elliott. She was saying that our uh, fascination with the term race is detrimental to uh, the fight for social justice. So I want to ask, it's a two-part question. One, do you believe in race as being a social construct? And two, if yes, how do you see us progressing or reconciling with the myth of race, but the very real social impact of race? Thank you. I'm going to invite both of you to respond to that. I think that we can do that uh, efficiently. Coleman, go ahead. Yeah, short version is yes, I do think race is a social construct. Uh, like many social constructs, it has real world consequences. But this is an, an area where I do tend to agree with Thomas Chatterton Williams, who uh, John referenced earlier in the discussion, where if something is truly a social construct, we should more and more push towards recognizing that at least where it matters, where it matters, um, politics and values, we should really push towards, we should always be anchored to the idea that race is essentially a social fiction. And just because it has real world consequences doesn't mean we have to validate and reify it further than it already is. Thank you very much. And Rakeem, uh, same to you. Yeah, I really agree with that sentiment. Um, and I, I think the sort of dividing line between Coleman and I is that I tend to think, I tend to be a little bit more deterministic, I guess, in thinking that it already is reifying the identity. And the question really is whether or not it serves a productive function or an unproductive function at a particular moment. And you have to be able to acknowledge both, right? The ways in which some people... Uh, will use their blackness, again, as ways of balkanizing, as ways of closing off, and other people will use their blackness or their race or whatever identity is, again, as a way of building a bridge. This is kind of like one of those classic debates about whether or not you can sort of unencumber yourself of all of your identities, what would be left if you were able to do that. And my, my basic view is you really can't. Race feels like one that you can pick off, but then when you start to talk about gender and you start to think about intersectional dynamics, you sort of say, like, how would you do it exactly? And what would it really mean for you to do it? In fact, the tendency for some Black people not to want to identify as Black is actually something that has a pretty long history, right? For those, I mean, some of my family members are light enough to pass. And so that identity is just another refraction of a racial, racial um, understanding of the world, kind of that race craft idea that other people have used. Excellent. Thank you very much, Rakeem. Uh, let's go next to um, Louis Lee. And, and I should have said this before, but if you would like to address your question to one speaker or the other, feel free to do that. But uh, in all cases, uh, be as concise as you can. Uh, Louis, you're, you are muted. Uh, I didn't have a question. I don't know how my hand got raised. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, in that case, uh, we shall move on. But thank you for your, thank you for your candor. Uh, okay, I suspect that Randy Lieberman has a question. Randy, go ahead and unmute yourself. Thank, Thank you, you, gentlemen, uh, for this evening. My, I'll just read my question, which is it's further down the list. And this is to um, Mr. Brooks. Uh, do you support the idea that we are in the, the period of the third reconstruction? If you do, does part of that process include reparations? 
If it does, what might those reparations look like? And uh, Mr. Hughes, uh, I hope that you answer this, address it after uh, Mr. Brooks. Okay. Well, we have to make good time here, but Rakeem, go ahead and uh, respond to that however you like. I imagine you've got more to say than we have time for, but to some extent, I feel like I'm going to disappoint Randy, and I'm sorry for that. We don't know each other, but I still feel as though I should do my best. Um, Are we in the period of a third reconstruction? Uh, We don't know yet, I guess would be my first answer to that. We seem to have moved off of a very large social movement, you know, allegedly the largest in, in our history. Um, certainly by numerical numbers, it was the largest, but I don't know about percentage of the population. And now moved into a Biden administration that seems to be very aggressive in its um, views of how the state should be used to support various social measures, um, including the child tax credit, which is something I agree with, and maybe student debt relief and other pieces that would advance racial equity. So I don't know if we're there there, where we are in that process. Uh, I think time will tell. The second question about reparations um, and whether or not they would be due I support a commission to actively study reparations, a bipartisan commission. We've had various forms of this before, but that's not a reason not to do it again. I try to remind people there was a first march on Washington or the, you know, an attempt at a march on Washington that didn't quite go anywhere. And then there was a second one that was successful. Um, repeating things is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think we need to study it and think about um, what exactly we believe ourselves repairing for and how we might produce it. There's a book by um, William Darity, Sandy Darity, and his uh, partner that just came out um, called From Here to Equality, I believe, that lays out a fairly compelling and comprehensive case of what we would need to consider. Uh, And so I would point you to him as a way of thinking about uh, this this subject. He's someone more learned than I am, frankly, and I haven't come to a a solid conclusion. Okay. Coleman, if you have something pressing you would like to add to this, I welcome you to do so. Otherwise, I move on to the next question. Um, Just in short, I, I... I don't think we're in a third reconstruction. As I said before, I think people throw around historical analogies and, um, um, you know, there would have to be something analogous to slavery. You know, the second reconstruction you could say came after Jim Crow, something um, analogous to slavery in the sense of being an injustice. I don't see what landmark moment could mark the end of an injustice that would have a third reconstruction to follow it. So I, but again, I haven't heard someone make that case, but it seems really dubious to me on its face. Okay. Next up, uh, George Milton, George, go ahead and unmute yourself uh, and try and make your uh, question concise. We're glad that you're here. Yes. Uh, my question is regarding the difference between critical race theory and race ideology. And is everyone clear on those differences? And if so, Shouldn't the issue be addressing race ideology instead of addressing critical race theory? Okay. Um, Rakeem or Coleman, do either of you have a response to that formulation? Um, Yeah, I I think if by race ideology you mean ideological racism, white supremacy, black supremacy, is, is that what you mean by race ideology? Is that correct, George? I am operating under the understanding the historical understanding that race ideology is about hierarchy by skin color. Okay. And there are, there are beliefs associated with white yeah. and beliefs associated with black. And that yeah. begins with racial identity. So that teaches the ideology of race, even in 2021. Okay. I think we got it for the, for the sake of time. Coleman, I think that that is okay. what you were speaking to. Yep. Okay. 
Understood. Yeah, you are totally right. Critical race theory is a different thing than race ideology. Race ideology uh, still exists. You know, the, the last poll I saw a couple years old from like 2016, the, social, the general social survey is one of the most trusted polls, found that something like one in four white Republicans and something like 12% of white Democrats said they would not want a family member marrying a black person. That's not negligible. Those numbers are not small enough to, uh, to wave away. So that's not what, that's definitely not what we're talking about with critical race theory. It's not, it's not about hierarchy so much as it is about the structure of society itself being racist. Okay. Excellent. Let's keep going. Uh, David Metzler, go ahead and ask your question. So this could be for both, but let me shoot it to Coleman. What do you, what do you think about the, I feel like the concerns a lot of people have about critical race theory are instead of letting people voluntarily do a a group identify themselves as a bridge, like Rakeem was so, so uh, nicely saying, it seems like you see a lot of reports of people being forced to group identify and to lead with that identity and, and make that subsume individual traits and identities and attitudes. Do you think that is a significant problem today? And maybe you could associate with CRT or not. Um, and, and do you have a response to, is that problematic? And what could be done about it? Very good. Thank you. Yeah, I would, I, I would separate it from CRT. CRT is uh, the label that's now being, you know, uh, slapped on that, but that's been around for, for many years. I mean, I, I remember when I was in high school, I was sent off to a workshop where, I mean, essentially they were really trying to get everyone to identify much more with which, whichever victim identity they could plausibly have. And it was like, you know, there are certain, these certain subcultural contexts, uh, elite Ivy league schools, very progressive high schools, private high schools, and incre- increasingly certain public schools. And, and, you know, this is one of those conversations where if it's not happening to you, you're going to think it's, what are these people talking about? But you got to remember, America is a huge country. It's like 10 countries in one. And there are places in the country where there is still a lot of anti-black racism as like a central problem. And there are other places in the country where kids are sending, people are sending their kids to school and the schools are so steeped in the D'Angelo style of anti-racism that they're making, you know, seven-year-old white kids view themselves as white as part of the curriculum and making them feel kind of uncomfortable about their friendships with, with black kids as opposed to letting things happen sort of naturally. So I do worry about that. And I think it's definitely the wrong approach to raising the next generation as the kind of anti-racist we should want them to be. Thank you very much, Coleman. Uh, next, I'd like to go to uh, Caroline Blackwell. Uh, Caroline, uh, if you would go ahead and unmute yourself. And please ask your question. You can address it to Coleman or Rakeem or to either of them. Um, thank you, so much. I'd like to first say that I went to an independent and private school. I have worked um, almost 30 years plus in that context. And um, I know of no educators, period who have ever taught critical race theory in any of our elite private schools. Um, Given that question is, 
given the persistent racial inequities that exist um, in our society, um, I wonder who benefits, or I'd like both of you to who benefits by the supposed ideology of colorblindness and who would benefit from ignoring um, the racial realities that exist in our country? Okay. So who benefits from colorblindness? Coleman, I, I think that you're the individual who should probably respond to that first. Akeem, I invite you to follow on if you like. Sure. Well, when I say colorblindness with respect to public policy, I mean policy that's based on class, which I think is the best proxy we have for disadvantage in this country. Obviously, any policy that targets the poor is going to disproportionately target black people. And that's a, you know, so, but yet there still is a huge difference between a policy that uses class as its metric for who needs help in this country and a policy that uses race for its metric, which is, in my view, a less accurate proxy for disadvantage. Uh, So who benefits from colorblind policy is, is that colorblind policy based on class more precisely targets the populations most in need. So that's what I would say. Keen, would you want to add to that or uh, shall we uh, proceed? Sure. There was a second part to Caroline's question. Does someone remember it? I'm sorry. I apologize, Caroline. I remember the first part, but not the second. Just want to make sure I answer it. Caroline, would you like to clarify very quickly? Go ahead and mention who benefits and... Who benefits by ignoring the racial realities and disparities if we adopted a, quote, colorblind philosophy? Yeah, thank you for that. Apologies again for getting it's getting late for me. I have wrestled with Coleman's analysis myself personally because I grew up in a poor neighborhood and so feel very closely to, to my class identity and then went to Brown University where, of course, I confronted many Black students who did not share my class identity. I think the problem has been, take the California system, for example, The thought was that they would eliminate affirmative action and that many people thought that they would be able to use class as a proxy for race. Um, And that has not turned out to be the case. Uh, Again, I think that because I have this reflexive belief that most black folks identify as black folks. (laughs) It's a very strong part of their identity. And so to erase it necessarily means that you will and try to create other proxies to access it necessarily means that you will miss large numbers of people because it takes two two to tango in social policy. And so I, I've become dubious of it as a solution, even though I was optimistic about it at one point in my life. Uh, but to Caroline's, I think, deeper question about who benefits, this gets back to my point about disparate impact. Um, the status quo benefits, and therefore necessarily the people who are advantaged at this particular moment benefit in our sort of racial hierarchy. And Coleman, I think, you know, I sort of have a left libertarian view and he has a right libertarian view. I think government did a lot of this, and therefore government has a responsibility to fix a lot of it. That doesn't mean I'm not skeptical about government. I have all sorts of reasons to be skeptical, but there is no force strong enough in society to counteract what government did. I very much understand the conservative point of view, which is government did this. Why would you want it to ever do more? In fact, if you think that it's a racist institution, how could it possibly ever serve your interests? I find that to be a compelling point that I don't have an answer for. I just know that my predilection leads in the other direction. Thank you very much. Okay, let's move on. Uh, Jeffrey Woods, please unmute yourself, sir. 
uh, and ask your question uh, concisely as we can. There we go. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like Rakeem and Coleman uh, to uh, answer this. Uh, Rakeem, I'm very interested in the idea, I've never heard of this as race as a bridge. Could you give me a specific example of what you mean by that? And Coleman, I'd like to hear your response as well. Yeah, very happy to. So I, I gave one example of it, which was sort of intergroup, which was a group of black women understanding one another's experiences being common to them as a racialized subgroup. But I also mean it in the sense that understanding, I was very moved by Elizabeth Wilkerson's book, Cast, because when I traveled to India, I was fascinated by what was happening there and how different it was. And to Coleman's point about not misusing historical analogies, it wasn't anything that I could relate to, frankly, as an American. At least I didn't think so. Elizabeth Wilkerson, whether or not you're, I don't necessarily agree with her analysis, so let me put that aside for a second. But it wasn't something I could relate to necessarily. But I had some reserves of historical experience because I was a Black American to say, ah, this is something that you two are tackling. This is the hierarchy and the group arrangement that you're trying to make sense of. You're engaged in a similar kind of struggle. And my belief ultimately is that the promise of humanity is to have multiracial democracies, not non-racialized democracies, because we come with these histories. The first step in the in the for maybe that's the goal, a non-racialized democracy, but there have to be steps along the way. And that has to be the first goal. And so the question is, how do I use my identity as a bridge to understand you better? So um, people have moved around on my screen, so I can't necessarily find you, find you anymore. But um, the idea is basically, what can I tell you about myself and how I grew up and how I understand my racial identity and what it means to me and the promise that it means to me to learn more about you? So I often say, you sometimes, this is one of the fascinating things, and you'll ask Black people, I mean, as uh, a test, um, you, I don't know that you should ask Black people this, but just follow me for a second. I have asked friends, what does your Blackness mean to you? And you will learn quite a lot about a person because sometimes their Blackness is entirely associated with negativity. It's about their hair, it's about struggles they've had, racism that they've encountered, et cetera. And mine tends to be, Black people have some, been some of the greatest freedom fighters in human history or a common identity to recognize that we are not um, somehow not human and therefore to be able to see when other people are being labeled in ways that render them not human, whether it be the LGBT community, not always, obviously there's homophobia in the black community like there is everywhere else, but the best of the tradition allows you to see in other people disadvantages and ways in which society is attempting to limit their possibilities. And that includes white people and everyone else, right? Because you're white doesn't mean you don't experience any disadvantage in the world. And I'd like to say that some of my experiencing disadvantage allows me to see that you experience disadvantage as a white person, even if you don't know that you experience disadvantage as a white person, right? And to be able to have that conversation to me is what we are ultimately trying to do as a community of peoples, as you know, they used to say in the civil rights movement. We wanna be drawn together by these things that people could use to divide us. We say, no, 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 we're not gonna allow that to happen. I know who I am, I know how I was raised, I know what's important to me. And I want to know what's important to you. And I want to see how we're the same. We may be different. Not everything is about similarity, mm. but bridges are often built based on um, the similarities. Mm. Indeed. Thank you, Rakeem. Uh, Coleman, is there anything you want to add to the subject of emancipatory uh, identity? Um, or shall we, shall, we, shall we proceed to the next question? Let's go to the next question because there's so many. Indeed. Okay, we'll do. Up next, Bill, Bonnie, go ahead and unmute yourselves. But even though there's two of you on the screen, I'm going to insist on one question. So. Pardon me for that. I'll go ahead and unmute. My question is 
about critical race theory seeming to me to be having the ability to learn our actual history. I grew up in the South, and what we got was the um, uh, ladies of the Confederacy's version of what American history was. And I think I think about critical race theory as being the first step being just the actual nation being able to learn our actual history. It seems like the issue that you're talking about with you know, race blindness or color blindness is another issue. And I'm wondering if my analysis is too simple or not. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Uh, Coleman, would you distinguish between these, these, uh, these two items? Color blindness and the, and the value thereof versus our need to actually tell the full truth about our history? Yes, I, I, I would. Um, I think critical race theory is very different from a full uh, accounting and analysis of American history. You could have a historian that knows more than anyone in the world about slavery and Jim Crow who didn't subscribe to critical race theory at all. They are, they are truly distinct. The practice of learning and teaching history from critical race theory, uh, which is a, a set of beliefs about the value structure of society itself. Right? You could teach the most intensive class on why Juneteenth matters. You could be, you could be a historian who goes into the archives and discovers a, a slave plantation that no one even knew existed uh, and, and had been lost to history without believing any of the philosophical and epistemological claims that are a part of what's called critical race theory. Now, how it's being used today, how that, how that term is being used today, does have something to do with how history is taught. But really, the, the, these are two different topics. Okay. Thank you very much, Coleman. Uh, let's go next uh, to Ronald and then to John Benning. And I'm going to start calling out the person in the on-deck circle so they can have their finger over the mute button uh, when, we, <laughs> uh, when we get to uh, the unmute button. But Ronald, go ahead, ask your question. Hey there, excuse the kind of zombie look. I'm parked in my car so I can get some reception. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I had the notion that a couple of you guys referred to it earlier that to have a group identity has, you know, some comforts and benefits that it also the, the deficits of, of having to adhere to a certain kind of a party platform, a certain point of view. And, I, and it seems like it's a natural inhibitor to, to uh, individuality and critical thinking and I wonder, you know, what we kind of do with that the dilemma when the, the, the ultimate reduction of identity to politics is going to end up with the individual. And I think that's the place where we can have the most progress. I wonder if there's any commentary on that, if that's clear at all. Rakeem or Coleman, uh, either of you wish to respond? I'll just give, give the analysis that, you know, the, you call them the founding fathers. Let's just use that as the, as the catch-all term really quickly, right? They tried to design a system that was nonpartisan, only to discover that we would fall into partisanship. Right. So I think you design for the, you know, if you could redo it, you design for the system that's going to be partisan. I think there is this longstanding presumption that there is a um, kind of arc towards individualism. That, you know, if we just keep striving for it, suddenly everyone will be an individual. And that's not how human beings exist in reality. So it is, it is always for me a kind of 
wishful thinking about uh, about so social arrangements. It's not to say that any one particular individual can assume a kind of life and identity onto their own. But if we're talking about race relations in the United States, I think we have to talk about relations among groups of people, even while we're identifying that there's great variety and differentiation among people within that racial group. Um, so my racial identity has never closed my eyes to something um, about the world. I don't, it's a, it, I, now Coleman and I both went to elite universities. So I always say the people who are trying to convince you that you need to think something because you're black are bizarre. They just are, whether they're black or white. <laughs> it doesn't matter who these people are. But the people who say to you, actually, there's a lot you can learn from the black experience in America. Let's try to think through this and do so critically. They're not then somehow trapping me in an, in an identity. They're actually exposing me in the same way that they say, here, go and learn something about Chinese history. Go and learn something about Canadian history or Mexican history. All of these things should enable us to see the fullness and complexity of human beings. And we don't, I think we lose that when we suddenly say, we're going to talk about in, individuals in some way. Um, yeah, I'm all about emancipating people from groups. We all know about terrible group situations um, where people are forced to think one thing or another. And, and this is one thing John has talked about earlier. I mean, the commitment to liberalism such that you must have one is to people being able to make choices for themselves. Freedom of conscience to me is more important than individuality. Uh, thank you, Rakeem. And you know what? This is going to have to be our final question. I'm going to ask that you ask it quickly, uh, John Benning. Go ahead and do so. And let's try and uh, return a, a crisp answer to it. John, go ahead. Yeah. So um, thanks so much for this. Uh, it was really great. So it seems like a convergence point between the two of your ideas on these topics um, is, is that history is definitely important in thinking about current day problems. Uh, but also that the ultimate utility of any particular historical lens is going to vary from like super useful to innocently nonsensical to actually a really bad way to think about this problem. So what's the best process for determining when it's useful and when it's not? And is anything in particular about the way we do this now or think about this now, especially standing in the way of doing it the right way? Coleman, we're going to go ahead and close on this with you. Go ahead. Sure. I mean, um, so the the process for doing it is no different than the process for figuring out what's true and reasonable on any topic and part of that process is to foster and support a culture of skepticism and free speech and open dialogue and to always discourage the worship of any particular writer or intellectual to resist appeals to authority or to, to substitute an argument being logical for a particular person being lauded and prestigious to oppose any taboos on reasonable criticisms, just to have, you know, a, a free and open sort of culture of critique and dialogue around issues where people aren't self-censoring and, you know, hope that the, the best and most useful ideas come out of that kind of culture, which often, but doesn't always happen, but certainly doesn't happen when people feel that their reputation is bound to having a particular opinion on, on the subject of historical racism. Indeed. John, can I offer one quick thing? Just this is just a I, I agree with Coleman entirely, but maybe very, just very quick. 
a packed of a piece. Um, there's a there was an expert on disinformation and misinformation. Long form reading is the way to deal with most of this. Short form reading often leads to mis misinterpretations of things and misperceptions. If you have the time, not every human being does, but this group has been here from eight to ten on an Eastern Standard Time. Long form reading. Indeed, I think Luke Phillips agrees with that. Um... And so do I. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, one more time, a round of applause, jazz hands uh, in Zoom speak uh, for Coleman Hughes and Rakeem Brooks. And very quickly, Coleman and Rakeem, let everybody here know uh, where they can uh, follow your work and how they can uh, keep up with you. Anything you want to plug, Rakeem Brooks, you first, go ahead. Uh, you, you can mostly watch my work at uh, aclu.org backslash systemic dash equality. I'm leading that initiative. Uh, occasionally, I'm writing pieces on the blog there, but that's where you'll see the substance of what we're working on. I believe we have links in the chat. Coleman, go ahead and let folks know where they can follow you. You can listen to my podcast, Conversations with Coleman, available on all platforms. You can subscribe to get the ad-free version of my podcast at my website, colemanhughes.org. You can follow me on Twitter at coldxman. Any way, any of those is is a way of supporting me that I would deeply appreciate. Outstanding. And thank you both. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. And thanks to all of you for your fantastic questions and for everybody being uh, willing uh, to show up uh, and join us tonight. Caroline, uh, uh, Alan, uh, Bill, and Bonnie. Uh, and everybody whose questions didn't get through, we apologize. Uh, but stay with us. And if you are interested in the work, if you support the work, um, of building out the communal spirit of American democracy, of being a part of our effort to cross the divides that uh, mobilize our ability to reason and work together as American people, left and right, black and white, then I encourage you to join us. We are at braverangels.org. We're a membership organization. We may have a local alliance near you that you can be a part of. And if this is your first time doing anything with us, this event and events like this are just the tip of the iceberg of the experience and democracy that we are building at Braver Angels. And so once again, that is braverangels.org. Thank you for being with us tonight. We are building a house united. Until next time. Thank you, folks. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.